I want to remind you, uh, we have some Bibles in the back. If you need a Bible right back there on the back shelf, just uh, help yourself. If you don't have a Bible, take that as a gift from us. We'd love to give it to you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can look on your device if you use that. That will be fine. We use the English Standard Version, and so you'll be uh, a little easier to follow along as we finish out our series on 2 Timothy. I've heard from many of you that this has been helpful and uh, challenging as it has been for me. And so we're glad you have joined us this morning as we conclude this. Next week we will go back to the Gospel of John and be in that for a while. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, I was thinking as uh, we were singing these songs this morning, and as I studied this week, how would I finish, wrap up this uh, chapter that's been so full of good lessons for us in our faith. And this chapter, this uh, fourth chapter, we'll start in verse 6. It's kind of like a final summary of some things uh, Paul wants to pass on to Timothy. And yet when he wants to do that, he's got the finish line in mind. He's not sad about coming to the end of his life. Actually, we're going to look this morning, and he's pretty joyful. He, um, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And I was thinking that uh, when, when my kids were little, every February late February, early March, we would do a two-week vacation, okay? Like, get out of the winter, and we would always go to Florida. And uh, after the first trip, I decided my strategy had to be different because I don't like to make 45 bathroom stops if I'm driving to Florida. So we would drive through the night, and inevitably... Kim, both my kids would say, we'll stay up with you, Dad. We'll stay up with you. <laughs> like, I knew there's no chance. 10 o'clock, they were out. And the finish line for me at that point was getting through the night till I could see the sun. Because I'd be good for the rest of the journey. But it's like that 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock was brutal. But once the sun came up, like, it was a breath of fresh air. I'm ready. I'm good to go. And when I read what Paul's writing here, it's, it's like that. He's saying, the finish line for me is heaven. It's, it's the sun. It's the place I long to go and can't wait to get to. So, chapter 4, verse 6. We're going to look at this in two pieces. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8 and pause for a minute and think about some things that Paul writes there and then we'll jump in to finish the rest. Here's what God's Word says this morning. Paul writes, again, let's be reminded he's in prison. He's writing this letter to Timothy, who's the uh, leader in Ephesus, the church there, and that letter will be passed around to other churches. Here's what it says. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. These are probably the last words written by Paul because he's awaiting imminent death. He never gets out of this prison, as a matter of fact. And so, as he writes, look at some of the wording he uses. He says first, I'm already poured out. In other words, there's nothing left for me. My, my life lived for Christ is now going to be over. And he uses the example of a drink offering. A, a drink offering was something that in the Old Testament would either be poured on a, a burnt offering or it would be poured on the ground before the burnt offering that had a very fragrant aroma. And so Paul's saying, look, my life is, is like that. Drink offerings, they didn't drop a, a little of the cup on the ground. They emptied the whole thing. Nothing left. And Paul's saying, I lived my life for Jesus like that. I, I dumped the whole thing out as a fragrant offering to Jesus. And then he says, my time of departure has come. He, he knows the next step in his life is death. Verse 7. We look at Paul as he says he's poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. And you know, it's interesting when we think of this. Our current context makes it difficult to understand this. No phones, no internet, right? We don't see any chance that they knew moment by moment what was happening in people's life. As a matter of fact, maybe Timothy got this, and Paul's already dead. He writes, and he says, the time's over. He gives an eternal perspective to Timothy and all those who read and I want to remind us, you remember the uh, whiteboard exercise we did? Like, our beliefs determine our, what? Values which are observable in our actions. Apply that for a minute to everything I just read to you about Paul. What are his actions? Living and striving to be obedient to Christ right to the very end. That's his actions. And that came from his belief in the gospel, which formed values that meant he was willing to love others, as the great commandment says, and to love God with everything he had. So Paul says, look, I don't really have any fear in death. I kind of have just anticipation in verse 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith He's saying, life for me was not easy. <laughs> you remember what we've read throughout these uh, chapters. 
There was persecution. There was false gospels. There was false teachers. There was strife and difficulty that Paul faced. And through this, we've said, hey, let's don't get the wrong view of the Christian life, that it's, oh, it's a piece of cake, nice and easy, and if you believe in Jesus, all is well. Only in your soul it is, folks. If you know Jesus, he had fought the good fight, the unwavering devotion to the true gospel of which he would proclaim to the very end. He says, I finished the race. He has competed and completed, if you will, his task given to him by Jesus. He had taken the gospel to the world. He was the person God chose to go to the Gentiles, the non-Christians, and preach the gospel. That put him at odds with religious leaders. That put him at odds with people in towns that come to faith in Christ and would run him out of town and stone him. But he says, then finally, I've kept the faith. He never wavered. He stayed the course. He believed every bit of what the gospel said and so was confident and did not worry about his eternal destiny. He never strayed from believing and following Jesus. You know, he's such a great example to us and to Timothy and others. And think of how this book of Scripture from God has stood the test of time, speaks to your heart right now. Paul's an example of living well in life and finishing well in death. He's not worried. Look with me in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Now we need to work through this a few minutes so you don't miss the important pieces here. Can you sense his anticipation? Can you sense that there's not trepidation? There's like, I'm looking forward to what is next. I'm excited about that. He knows what awaits him. He's not focused on death. He's looking forward to the joy and the assurance with confidence of where he will spend eternity. And so that's the finish line. He, he's looking forward to what will happen. And he says it will be awarded to him by who? Look at your scriptures. Who awards him this? Christ. Christ awards this crown of righteousness to him. Two things to think about when this example of a crown is used. First, it's an example of a wreath, possibly, for Olympic uh, athletes that would compete and would be given the first prize. So many would interpret and understand that. Paul ran the race, he finished well, and he gets the crown of the winner. It also has the understanding of royalty. 
like kings, right? Royalty. And so Paul's saying, yeah, I finished the race. I, I ran it well right to the end. This crown is a crown that proves that I am a son of the living God. That's the crown he's going to get. He doesn't say, I hope I get it. He doesn't say, maybe I'll get it. What's he say? I will get this crown of righteousness. The crown that's placed upon his head and everyone's head that says you are a son of God by the righteousness given you in Christ. Contrast that, if you will, with his current situation. He's sitting in prison. By the way, it is a bad prison. Cold, damp, not going to get out. And he's being judged by probably the Emperor Nero, who is an unfair judge, who is unjustly judging him, who has already condemned him to death. Paul says, hey, can do whatever you want. I will stand before the righteous judge. And that's what I look forward to. And he wants to make sure the readers of this letter, Timothy and others, understand that Paul's not some special individual that's going to get this crown. He wants them to make sure to know everybody who is a Christ follower will stand before the righteous judge and can do so confidently. And so he says, um, not only to him, but also who have loved his appearing have you thought about that before? That you take your final breath, the next thing you're aware of is you're standing before Jesus. Next thing. When you stand before Jesus, what will that be like? Well, I want to share with you this morning in these few verses that we learn a couple of very important things. We stand before Jesus, who is a righteous judge. He's fair. He's just. He's impartial. And Paul says, I'm not worried about this because of the gospel. I will stand before a righteous judge. So the first thing this morning is every single one of us will stand before Jesus, the righteous judge. And you say, well, how do you know Jesus is the one who judges us? John chapter 5, verse 21, says this, The Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son. When I said you will stand face to face with Jesus, it's because he is the righteous judge. Again, have you thought about that? standing face-to-face with Jesus, and what do you think you will hear? Let's go on. Not only will everyone stand before the righteous judge, I would want to know what this judge is like. Who is this judge Jesus that I will stand before? He is fair, he is just, he is impartial, 
and he judges every single person by the same thing. I don't get judged differently than you. You don't get judged differently than the two people behind you in the next row. Everyone stands before Christ and is judged by the same thing. Now that's good news, right? Like he's fair. I know there's not a, a, a sliding rule that gets put on uh, to judge me with. No. He is a righteous judge. We're measured by our sin and his holiness. That's it. You stand before Jesus and you give an account for your sin and you stand looking at Jesus who is perfect, holy, and righteous. That means you've got to be perfect, you have to be holy, and you have to be righteous in order to be welcomed in by Jesus. All of us fail. Amen? We all fail. So he is a judge that is fair and just, which makes you and I ask the question, how are we going to measure up? Let's jump down to my next point. Not only is everybody going to stand before this judge, we know what he's like in terms of a righteous judge. How will he judge us? Go backwards in your scriptures to Romans chapter 3 for a minute. We're going to look at verses 21 through 23. Here's how he will judge us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. You and I stand before Jesus, and it's either that we are judged by our sin, or we're judged by our faith in Christ, and declared righteous by him. What's that mean? It means when I stand before Jesus, he will either say, I know you, or depart from me, I never knew you. Heavy sermon this morning, right? But it's true. It's not going to be, I stand before Jesus, and he's going to say, well, you knew a lot about me, so that's pretty close. He didn't say, I know a lot about you. I either know you, or depart from me, I never knew you. Matter of fact, there's some scripture in Matthew chapter 11 that's, that's kind of one of those scary passages. Um, Jesus said, not everybody who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will come into the kingdom. Because they'll say, oh, I've done all these different things in your name. I've cast out demons. I've served you. And Jesus says, I'll say to them, depart. I never knew you. The righteousness of Christ is given to us by grace through faith. That he is, 
he is the Savior of the world who takes away the sin of the world. That's not just something we flippantly say, sure, I can agree to. It is something we are judged by. Who judges? Jesus, the righteous judge. Let's go down to verses 9 through 22. And we'll have some fun because there's lots of names that I'm not sure I know how to pronounce. So, <clears throat> Verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Bring him here with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the coat that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you. So do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with you in spirit. Lots of names, lots of places, easy to get lost. Let me take a couple minutes and help clear it up a little bit for you. First of all, Paul, again, is expecting to die, so he wants to make sure he's encouraging those because, again, this letter will be traveled and circulated. And so there's lots of people who have been faithful to serving Christ that Paul wants to encourage. We've used the word disciple-making. And might I just say that he's disciple-making to the very end as we read this first. He kind of gives an update on a lot of those that have followed him. Some good, some not so good. Demas, the first one mentioned, must have hurt Paul somehow. It says he deserted him and started chasing the things of the present world. I don't know what that means. You're like, rats. You help me out. I can suspect what it means. You know, maybe being with Paul when he was in prison was just a little too much. He was like, I, I, I don't know that I can suffer like this. And so he took off and deserted Paul. 
Maybe being in a dungeon scared him. It would scare me. We don't know. But here's an interesting piece. It says he went to Thessalonica. Thessalonica had a strong, vibrant, gospel-preaching church. And so if things got scary for Demas, let's don't be too quick to say he's still not a follower, but he's a scared Christian. And I have a feeling that if he was in Thessalonica, it would have encouraged him and reoriented him back to service. Maybe it's a warning to us. We don't always get it right in our faithfulness, right? But there's grace. There's grace. And there's people around us to get us back on track. Another name I want you to notice in here is Mark. Again, think Paul discipling people. Mark is specifically mentioned. Acts chapter 15 is an account of uh, Mark, Barnabas, and Paul getting ready to head out on Paul's second missionary journey. And before this, somehow Mark was involved with them and was maybe like Demas, not very reliable. He wasn't reliable to go on the mission, so Barnabas and Paul actually have a conflict. Paul says, I'm not taking Mark. He's unreliable, and I have work to do. And so Barnabas takes Mark. But notice what Paul says about him here. At some point, maybe it's Colossians 4 that we read about Mark and Paul again. They have reconciled. They have reconciled their relationship. And he says, bring Mark. He's really useful in ministry. You think that a lot of people had heard how he was not useful before? Yeah. Now says he's useful. It's important for Mark to be a part of this process. And so Paul is modeling to them forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration in relationships that are built around the gospel. Is that true of you? Is that true of you this morning? Can you say that, yeah, I got a brother or a sister in Christ that we've had a conflict, but I forgave them. I've reconciled with them, and I respect restored in our relationship, and I'm going to promote and encourage and say, they're a mission with us and Jesus. Or do your relationships model more of those of the world? Paul disciples these readers into what it looks like to forgive, reconcile, and restore. By the way, That's the gospel, isn't it? God forgiving you and me. Reconciling us to himself. And restoring our broken relationship. I would say that that then has to be the basis for every Christian relationship we have. If that's Jesus' model, 
to us, that's to be our model to everyone else. Amen? Then he goes on and he says, Luke's with me. One of the New Testament writers. Luke has been a faithful companion in ministry, and so he is with him. Then he gives a warning about Alexander the coppersmith, which we don't know who that is for sure, but he's a troublemaker. He's a problem. He's anti-gospel. And he has not agreed with the message. And so what's the warning? Stay away from him. Be careful. Don't let him speak in the church. (laughs) Timothy, make sure others know about this unfaithful, false proclaimer of following Christ. And then he kind of ends up with saying, here's some very specific needs I have. Bring me a cloak. I need my coat. It's cold in this dungeon. Winter's coming. I need some help with that. Bring my books, which would have been referred to like Scripture. The Old Testament writings, bring those and bring parchments. That's what they would write on. And Paul's saying, even though I'm your Paul, I, I need you, Timothy, to, to come encourage me with a coat. Bring my Bible so I've got it with me. Bring some writing material so as long as I have breath, I will continue to write about the gospel and send it out. Help me. Join with me. Let's be on mission together still as I await my death. He says, the Lord will rescue me, reminding Timothy and the churches that heaven is the goal. Heaven's the goal. It's the finish line. His death on earth imminent, but heaven and glory await. And so he's saying, that's where my hope's fixed. That's where I plan to go. Can't wait to get there. I certainly have suffered enough in this life. But I'll continue on to the very end if that's what you want, Jesus. The best is awaiting Paul when he stands face to face with Jesus, the righteous judge. No fear. Well, I just have two summary points this morning as I think back over this series that I hope you take away with you. First, when we think of gospel endurance, and that's what this series was built around, gospel endurance produces a life of great commandment love. Gospel endurance produces a life of great commandment love. Paul's approach to life and death was couched in his hope and certainty and desire from heaven. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, my favorite, well, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Paul writes to that church and says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Put into our language a little more, it would be, For me, living is Christ. Dying is the goal, to be with Christ forever. 
this great commandment love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength is modeled by Paul. And we've heard it all the way through these scriptures. Think back to chapter 1. Here's what Paul wrote in verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow that pattern, Timothy. I love Jesus. Follow me in loving Jesus. Paul models what devotion to Christ looks like in our uh, scriptures in verse 17 of chapter 4. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. Gospel endurance gives us strength. And that strength only comes from an uncompromised devotion to Jesus. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Jesus said that's the most important commandment. Looking and longing for heaven is a good thing. You know, we don't talk about that very much, do we? I mean, we have a lot of good things in this life compared to people around the world who don't have a lot of good things. But we have a lot of good things, and I appreciate Thankful to God for the good things we have, but compared to heaven, it won't be anything. I mean, when Paul says he longs, longs to be with Jesus, he wants a place that never has sin again. There's no more storms, there's no more death, there's no more fights. He longs for heaven. It's a good place, amen? (laughs) 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul wrote back then when we were in that scripture that salvation with Christ has an eternal glory to it. An eternal glory, meaning there's no end to the glory, the magnificence, the richness the extravagance of a life with God forever and ever. So Paul says, he's looking to the finish line with expectation. He's going to finish well. He doesn't know if that's today, tomorrow, or how long for him, but it doesn't matter. That's the goal. That's the expectation. Don't fear heaven. Don't fear heaven. Rejoice over the opportunity to be in heaven. Second thing I want us to take away from this series is gospel endurance produces a life of great commission intentionality. And we've hit that throughout this pretty hard. I want to draw your attention back to chapter 2. First, uh, second verse, Paul said to Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We talked about this multiplication. 
Take what Paul said, Timothy, teach it to others. Timothy, teach them to teach it to others. And on and on and on and on. It's, uh, it's that idea that every single one of us have been called by Christ, if you're a follower, to join him in his mission of making disciples. And so, if you remember, um, back in chapter 3, we talked about what might this look like. It's, uh, it's um, three things. Involve people in your life, right? Invest in them, and then ignite them. We make it too complicated because, if you remember back during that, uh, that message, I said we make disciple-making about how much we know. Okay? So, instead of teaching people to know Christ the way you know Christ, we make it an academic exercise where only pastors or seminary professors can know enough. And so we're intimidated. And Paul just models here this process of involving people in his life. Look at it. We know his closeness with Timothy. He calls him a child in chapter 1. But now Luke's with him, Mark's with him, and some others have been with him. He's got them involved in his life. Great Commission focus is a together process. It's a together process. And Paul's saying, come be with me. And talk about being vulnerable. Come be with me and let me show you how I live when life is really hard in this dungeon. Waiting death. Look how, look how I live. And then do the same thing. Fix your hope on heaven the same way my hope is fixed on heaven. Fix your eyes on others and invest in them the same way I am doing. Yes, I write these things and send them out to Christians all over. Then he says, I need a coat. You know, Paul's need encouragement too, don't they? They have needs. Sometimes Paul gets so busy pouring out and giving to others, they forget they need somebody to pour into them. It's like, Timothy, come. I need a coat. Bring to me my books and bring to me the parchments. You almost get a sense of, hey, I'll dictate some more things to you, but just your presence is going to be a great encouragement to me. And you know what I think some of that encouragement was? Paul's looking and saying, ah, Timothy is on mission. Yeah, look at him. Good job, Timothy. Second is invest. Paul's concern for his disciples was great. Beware of Alexander the coppersmith and the false gospels. Guard, measure, be careful. It's important to disciple in the right things. I love when he says, bring my books, which would have probably meant the Old Testament Scriptures. Remember uh, chapter 3, verse 16. 
The tool of disciple-making is what? Scripture. It's Scripture. And so he is modeling again what that looks like. He's investing in his followers right to the very end. So he encourages them to continue in the gospel that everybody will stand before the righteous judge. Don't forget who the righteous judge is. It's Jesus. When you stand before the righteous judge, he will declare you righteous if you know him and he knows you. And then an easily overlooked piece, and I would say that I think this is where most disciple-making fails today, at least, is the word we used, ignite. Remember, disciple-making is about equipping people and then releasing them to do it. Remember, too often we stop at the invest piece. Look at verse 12. He says, I sent Tychius. I sent him. And he went. There are people other places that he mentions that are connected as well. But there are at least 15 people named in this passage, friends. 15 people named in this passage that Jesus, or that Paul has as a disciple. Just in this passage. He is disciple-making. He had ignited them to go into the world and live on mission, making more disciples. Six different cities mentioned in this passage. The gospel is being shared and more disciples are being made. Multiplication is happening. And that's Jesus' plan, friends. That's his plan. You, you follow Jesus, he wants you to do what he did. We need people who want to be Timothys, let's be honest. We need people who want to be Timothys, that want to be equipped and go. We need people who want to be Pauls, that pour into Timothys. They're willing to say, yeah, look at my life when it's rough. I want you to see how I respond. I want to invest in you and help you to be matured, sent, living on mission. What would our town look like? What would our town look like if disciple-making was the thing that we all did? Not one of the things, but the thing. I mean, what, we have 150 people, something like that here? What if we had 150 people who each and every day lived to be a disciple-maker? I bet our town would look different. And then what if the people that we discipled then started discipling other people? What would that look like? And, and then what if they discipled? You get it. There's an interesting verse in, at the end of Acts where it says, these people are turning the whole world upside down. The gospel does that. 
I don't know about you, but I'm ready to invest in disciple-making focus. I want to do that. I hope you want to do that. I'm ready to see what God will do when we say yes to making disciples. I hope you are as well. What do we do? Well, you say yes and you start. It's not hard. You can involve people in your life. Amen? You can invest in them. Amen? You have to ignite them. Have to. Send them out. That's interesting. We think that when we send them out, we have no more interactions. That's not the case, is it? Paul still knows where they are and what they're doing. And they're encouraging not only Paul, but each other. Because they're turning the world upside down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this has been a good series for us. To stand back and see that Paul, as he had said in Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ, has modeled exactly what you did. Thank you this morning that you are a righteous judge, which we will stand before one day and be judged on our righteousness. Oh, it won't be whether we wore the right clothes or we avoided the right kind of, or the wrong kind of places. It won't be how many churches we were a part of or how often even. We will be judged on your righteousness all the same. And the only way we can survive that is by knowing you, having confessed our sin, and loving and following you, and having your righteousness credited to us. Not works, lest anyone would boast. We are saved by grace, through faith. This morning, might heaven be our finish line, but a finish line that we dread, but a finish line we look forward to? Might our life reflect the same passions that we read about in Paul? And might our life look like Paul, Timothy, others were now made disciple-making legacies. Might our life be a disciple-making legacy as well? So this morning as we've been challenged and encouraged by your word, we commit our hearts to you. A heart that needs to be open a heart that needs to say yes. A heart that loves you with our, our, all of our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Amen.